Our passion didn't start with a mouth. It started with people, with the well-being of the profession. And if you're like me, maybe a little bit of your nerdiness and all things tech too. We all want to love what we do, but the truth is burnout, people problems, and glass ceilings can keep us from doing what we set out to do. So let's get back to the heart of connection. Welcome to the Dental Handoff. This show is about passing you the knowledge, the habits, the systems, and the strategies to lead your teams, lean on your tech, and listen to your gut while you take care of people and truly the overall health of our communities. Let's stop using the wrong end of the toothbrush, y'all. My name is Dr. Kelly Tanner. Oh, and uniquely, I'm a dental hygienist too. You can consider me a guru in the dental and leadership industry. With over three decades of experience, my goal is to take you to the next level by empowering growth, perspective, and confidence. By identifying the gaps, recognizing the plaque, and extracting the truth with the other experts in the field. I'll share their stories, empower you to own yours, and elevate your passion in the process. So have a seat in the chair, put on your bib, and let's get to work. Welcome to the Dental Handoff. I'm Dr. Kelly Tanner, your hostess. And today I have with me Dr. Mark Lotta. I'm at Creighton University with Mark, spending some time with here today on a, a phenomenal project that we're working on together. And I met Mark, I guess this, was it this past summer? It was, no, it was in January. It was in January. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was cold outside, but it was kind of warm there. It was warmish. <laughs> right. Yes, in the, the the great beautiful state of Florida. Yes, and so it was warmer than it was in Virginia, where I typically live. But uh, we met at the Catapult Education Retreat, and Mark is a scientist of many things. He's the mad scientist friend that I know. He's going to tell you all about his story. But Mark, I always start with why dentistry. Well, first, thank you, Kelly, for visiting us here in Omaha. Um, my journey into dentistry in context why dentistry starts with me as a science major in college and my interest in in quantitative uh, science. Um, I had that interest as a young person and I studied chemistry in college and actually went to graduate school uh, to pursue a PhD in chemistry and learned that while I love science and technology that the formation from for me in that field was going to lack human interaction to the level that I wanted. And um, I had a, a college friend, a fraternity brother of mine, who was in dental school at Georgetown. And I went to visit him while I was in graduate school and took some and sat in and audited some dental courses that he was taking. And that's how I got interested in the dental profession. So dentistry as an opportunity has been really wonderful. Although when I made that choice coming out of graduate school to go into dental school, I I really didn't have an understanding of how diverse my professional life could be, but dentistry has afforded me some wonderful diverse opportunities. So uh, I graduated. I did a year of hospital dental training and practiced in a hospital setting and also a federally qualified health center. Uh, I had a scholarship to go to dental school, so I was paying back my commitment. And then I started uh, as an associate in a private dental practice. And in that practice, I was asked to do, very interesting, some cosmetic dentistry cases for a dental company. They were developing some new dental products. So I learned from chemistry that I wanted more human interactions. I learned from practice that I didn't really like and appreciate the business aspects of running a private dental Mm -hmm. practice. So I segued then and I had an opportunity to go into the dental industry. Um, 
where I did work for a dental company doing, you know, participating initially in product development and eventually uh, directing research and development for a division of a large dental company. During that time, I went back and, and pursued another graduate degree in biomaterials. Um, that company experience led me to placing studies at universities. And I began a, a, what has been a professional lifelong collaboration with an individual here at Creighton, Dr. Wayne Barkmeyer, who was the research dean at the time that I was placing studies here, both laboratory and clinical trials. And I got to learn about the academic world, and in particular, the, the world here at Creighton. Dr. Barkmeyer was uh, appointed uh, from his position, promoted from his position to become the dean of the school, and thought that because of my research interests, my humanistic interests, my interest in education, um, he basically thought I'd be a good fit to come to Creighton. And so I left the corporate world and came here to Creighton. Um, so that's sort of in a nutshell, my, the arc of my professional life. I've had some interesting twists and turns here, although as an educator and a scholar, uh, I was primarily doing that for about 16 years. Uh, I had the opportunity to uh, apply for and be appointed the dean of the school. So I spent 10 years in administration. And over the last two years now, I've come back to the faculty to teach and do research. Okay, so you went from a person auditing a dental class to private practice to working for a corporate entity. Well, you were a chemist in there somewhere too, right? For how long? Well, I, I, I worked as a chemist before I went to graduate school uh, for a short time, for, for a year doing analytical chemistry. Um, then I went to graduate school. Um, I was all but dissertation for a master's degree in chemistry when I left, and I didn't pursue my PhD when I left to go to dental school. So um, my chemistry background has helped me in my research background as, uh, as a biomaterials scientist. Um, I've had an opportunity to work with colleagues here to actually create formulating, create new products, new, new dental materials, basically, specifically, and, and new approaches from a chemical perspective and from a biomaterials perspective for solving dental problems. So that aspect of my, I, I think what is most interesting about my career is I've always tried to bridge the gap between what is theoretical and what is uh, fundamentally scientific in a laboratory setting, and what is truly translational clinically. Because at the end of uh, the end use of our materials is in a human being that we're treating for a variety of reasons across the dental diseases that we treat. So I've always tried to remember both in formulation in the lab as well as translation to that in the clinic, because there are terrific technologies that are available that aren't pragmatic for clinicians to use. Mm. Um, and so if they cannot not usable in a very pragmatic way uh, or a convenient way or a patient tolerant way, then while they may have all these attributes from a theoretical perspective that are wonderful for disease control, they don't make, they don't see the light of day from a actual translation to market because they're not useful actually to the clinician. Mm -hmm. So what do you think was a common thread between you starting out as a dental student going to a private practice? practitioner, chemist, a chemist, and all of that, corporate, dean, and now you're doing... So what's this common thread through everything that just lights you up? Um, probably problem solving. I, I, I think common to... So my research training 
has a very specific um, rubric and discipline to it in terms of assessing a problem, forming a hypothesis, gathering data, analyzing the data, using as of concept feedback cycle into what's the, what the next step is. And you can apply some of those principles uh, to problem solving in a humanistic way or problem solving actually in engaging and dealing with people. And so there's a common thread, I think, through all the roles that I had where I guess I was attracted to integrating um, all the information that's available and sometimes making decisions with a limited amount of information, um, discerning through the decision-making process for however we're approaching whatever problem we're thinking about, uh, and then applying that, and then you know really evaluating it, assessing the success of that decision and bringing it back into a feedback loop. I think that's a principle of leadership, whether you're leading a scientific team or leading a dental school or leading a curriculum change, that that is important to not fall in love so much with your own ideas that you're not open to honestly assessing results, data to feedback into the decisions that you've made in the direction you're going. So I think, and clinically, you know, that's applicable in, in trying to solve patient problems. Um, in my research career, uh, both in the corporate world and, and as an academic researcher, and then as a clinician here and teaching our students and, you know, modeling for them the best clinical care. I think there's this um, constant feedback loop of, of data collection and, and assessment that has been common to all those things. So I think that's what uh, intellectually is very interesting to me. So how did you apply this to people when you were dean? <laughs> Because you're talking about this process. So I'm sitting here like, did you have a rubric for that? Or in your mind, did you problem solve it in a specific way? Typically, because now you're dealing with a different, sure, a, a whole different problem that you're trying to solve or problems. Yeah, I, I think uh, in a complex environment that, um, and every leader faces things like this, whether, regardless of the kind of leadership team that they're, they're, they're asked to, to support and lead that you have to go into these these positions, these situations, what I would call my default settings. So a series of principles. So if you're solving a research problem, there are principles that are established that sometimes new research would contradict and you, you build a new model or a new hypothesis, right? Well, in human behavior, what are, what are your, what's your default setting for values? Because you're going to face situations um, that maybe no one else has ever faced before or that you haven't personally had the experience of dealing with in terms of human behavior, in terms of external forces, you know, as I had to deal with when I was deemed from outside forces, whether they be regulatory agencies or the politics of the local state or licensing boards or alumni. Every leader finds themselves facing a new challenge that they may they may be prepared for, but but have never had to face before. And so, how do you approach a challenge that? My goodness, what do you do? Well, the first step is as a researcher, is you fall back on what do you know and what you know internally in your in someone that is a leader and self aware is what are your basic values? What I would call your default settings. How will you approach this? So, as a dean of a school that. Um, is is housed in a Catholic and a Jesuit institution. There are a series of values of what we call charisms that are supported by the sponsor of our institution, the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus, that would be very focused 
on one of the charisms of the of the Jesuits is care of personalis or care of a whole person. So as we would deal with complex issues, one of the first questions I'd ask, what is in the best interest of why we're here? And why we're here is we're here for our students and for our patients. And so as you would face a new situation, the corona crisis was a, was a really good example of that, is as we were whipsawed by national policies and by testing and by the university policies and by fears in the community for the patients that we serve, how are we going to serve our patients and how are we going to meet the expectations of our students? Those were the priorities. And then working from that as a basis, we incrementally on a daily basis, <laughs> changing on a daily basis, sometimes the policies tried to address it based on those two imperatives. What's in the best interest of the patients that we serve that, that, that come to us for care and for the students that come to us for their education. Um, another principle is every, you know, everybody pays lip service to being fair. But being fair, you know, so should everyone be treated equally? And is that fair? And so there's a nuance to that, that equal doesn't mean fair because you have to meet each individual where they are and what is in the best interest in, in, in both the total organization that you're running and the interest of that individual. So as you deal with these humanistic issues, with personnel issues, and some of these challenges that a leader has to deal with, diversity of perspective and opinion, you have to fall back on some of these basic principles. What are your values? Why are you here? And can we get common agreement on, on why we're here? And then you focus on the how do you do it? Mm -hmm. And then there can be legitimate, uh, hopefully positive conversations back and forth about how that is. But if you can agree on the shared what, then the how often is a little easier to get to. And so those are just some fundamental things that as I looked at my experience prior to leading the dental school um, that were important for me in terms of how I tried to manage the, the humanistic kinds of questions that we had. Yeah, because that's quite a, you're going from a, a very controlled environment as a, as a researcher, yeah. as a researcher and you're going into almost chaos. I, I mean, I'm not putting words in your mouth. I, I just, I, I don't know, but I have observed and other folks in that role. And that's, it's a very uncontrolled, <laughs> unpredictable environment. And so what do you think is the, the thing, the characteristic that you utilize in yourself, like that value perhaps that came forward in you to say, I've got this and we're going to get through it. Well, I think, <clears throat> and I, I like to share with my students, it sounds a little bit trite, but, but it, it, it's, it's a reminder to manage yourself. And so in clinic, for example, I, I will remind students in any crisis they broke, they hit the adjacent tooth and damaged it, or the crown fell off, or they perf they perfed, and any, or, or the patient's having a syncope effect. In any emergency, the first pulse that you take is your own, mm -hmm. is you're no good to anybody else unless you can center yourself. And that's, that's hard in a stressful environment. And it's something we try to model for our students. So, so for me, that was always essential is that I was able and or, or I, I always sought to be, I wasn't always successful, to, to, to center myself, depersonalize the issue, um, 
and so that the disagreements that would come to me or some of the anger or emotions that were coming at, because that's intrinsic to some of these human issues and the chaos, as you say, which, which is quite accurate actually in a dental school or, or the angry patients yeah. or the, or, or, or the dental practice <laughs> or, or the, or the alumni or whatever, whatever the issue is, is, is first manage yourself. Um, whether they are treating, treating it personally, you don't take it personally and you break it down into what the issues are, what the foundational issues are, how it applies to your values. Um, so I think that, that is an important way to think about it. The other thing that some of my colleagues would disagree with is when you're in a pluralistic environment. So here at Creighton, we have, you know, 80 plus full-time dental faculty who are all as equally educated, doctored with professional and postgraduate education as, as I was, as in theory, the, you know, the alpha at the top of the pyramid. And so everybody has an opinion and they're all pretty smart people. They don't always have all of the data that someone in my position would have had in order to make decisions. So, so you, you, one needs to understand where, where in that kind of a tumultuous environment you're coming from. And then there's the practical reality of making progress and understanding what success is. And there was really never a time in the 10 years I served as a dean that I was 100% successful getting what I really thought should happen. And, and being comforted and comfortable with meaningful progress in making really good steps in improvement of program or developing people or hiring good people. And sometimes you have to accept great success at 60% of what you think should happen mm. because that's the reality of working through people that have a, have a, you know, you have to work through the people that you work with and they don't always fully agree with what you think. Mm. Um, there were rare occasions where because of values that a leader has to, I'm going to use this in a, in a kind of a harsh way, but impose their will either because there are, there are legal issues or there are issues that relate to foundational values where we can agree to disagree, but this is what we have to do in this case. But an insightful leader, particularly in an environment where there's a lot of educated opinions around something, really has to be very thoughtful and selective about when that has to happen and know that it's really to support, uh, without compromise, a, a really fundamental, you know, almost a transcendental kind of value. Um, that happens, but it's rare, really, in my experience. So you are, you talked a little bit about a learning organization and how that, how that's imperative to the success of any type of organization. You were talking about how it's important to, I always think of a learning organization as kind of like a Krebs cycle where you learn, you evolve, you let, you do better, you, you learn. It's just, you know, constant cycle of everything. What do you think has set you up for in your career like this, this I guess this um, this person of service that I know that you are through what you've done in your career and to keep you moving forward to learn and to do better. Like, what's that? What's that thing in you that says, "I must. 
I must, I must go, I must learn, I must do better. Is there something in you that motivates you? Wow. Um, I guess for me, the, 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 my, my um, personal spiritual life about being with and for others, which is a, which is a, a charism of the Jesuits that I, I adopted, I guess I, it would be the best way, way to say, is that fulfillment from a professional perspective and from a personal perspective for me, as, as I define that, is in having a heart to, to, to do that, to be with and for others. In, in, a, in a practical way, you know, as an educator and as a leader, as a researcher, and, and in a humanistic way in terms of working as hard as I can to be better about building relationships with people and, and, and being for them and with them in that way. Um, and so learning situationally how to do that both as a professional person in serving an institution or serving a, a role as an educator, and then personally in building those relationships. So I guess with that as a goal, um, the Krebs cycle that you talked about is uh, a component that I draw from my research career where, where the goal is to be with and for others, to do things along that line, to honestly reflect about the success and situationally in whatever that uh, endeavor that I was involved with would, would be talking about or doing as whether it be professionally or, or personally, and then uh, forgiving yourself when you make mistakes. Mm. Um, I, I observe a lot of individuals who become handcuffed by the past and unable to get that yoke off of their back to make, when they legitimately made mistakes to, to look forward and to learn from it, but not have it become a shackle for individuals to make the, the positive change. You know, there are in many people's insecurity. So in a professional sense, you can try an educational thing and it doesn't work with the students and the, and the, and the student reviews are bad. And you see individuals that just crawl back into their turtle shell and they don't, they don't try to get out of that. Instead of learning from it, try to depersonalize it. And look, we're in the people business. It's a very personal business. So it's very difficult to depersonalize it. But I think it's important for people to move forward and be successful in whatever their foundational goals are. So I guess, you know, that Krebs cycle helps me, has helped me to, um, as a scientist, to critically analyze myself, um, I've always been, been completely successful at that. But I think that that's an important component to establishing what's next, mm -hmm. learning from the past, but leaving it behind as much as possible. Yeah, because you can get frozen in that, oh my gosh, should I do the right thing? And like you said, be afraid of going into something that you may not set you up for set you up for success or thinking that other people are judging you or, or like, Oh, here he comes again, or here she comes again with this. Ah, you know how it's, you know how it ended last time. I it's right. that and letting go of that and knowing that it's not always a perfect process. But, but, but there is a flip side to that as well. If for, for the kind of the 
construct that I said about the Krebs cycle, the data analysis, the, the feedback, is you, you, there are some individuals that, that, that will often become paralytic in the data analysis mm-hmm. and, on, and, and continually analyze the data and not strike out. Because, you know, whether it's research or whether it's human behavior, you're not, you know, there's not, never 100% certainty about what the data really means. And so, you know, you have to have some courage uh, and take risks. Um, and I know in the academy, in, 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 in dental education, there are many individuals that are very risk averse. And there are some good reasons for that. But, but I think to be bold from a, an evidence base first, mm-hmm. but to be bold in, in that, knowing that new data may contradict or clarify or contextualize previous data that will lead you in a different direction. And, you know, that's just the process, whether it's human behavior or whether it's scholarly work. I love how you just took research and you made it something that you can apply to that humanistic approach to how you, it's, it's amazing, but it's, it's so true. But at the core of it all, you're an ethical, you want to do what's ethically right by people for people serving others. And so that's what I admired about you when I met you at oh, the retreat you. and continue to admire about you. Um, I have to I have one question that is totally unrelated. <laughs> okay. You may not be able to answer this, but can you talk about maybe for like 30 seconds or a minute about your coolest research project that you've worked on, something that you discovered or <laughs> wow, burning questions for me. I, I, something I mean, that you did or contributed, contributed to that you can talk about because I know some stuff you can't talk about. I, well, okay, I'll cite two things. One, some very old research that I did that, that I was a part of when um, ceramic restorative materials were being introduced to the profession for full crowns as a significantly improved aesthetic alternative to porcelain fused to metal. And the early ceramics, and I won't name the products because they're no longer on the market, while they were beautiful and probably okay for anterior restorations, were pushed by corporate entities for posterior crowns. And they simply didn't have the strength. And these crowns were breaking. And early research looked at the physical properties of enamel and why enamel did break when it was on top of dentin. And it's because it's biologically adhered as, as, as someone that's involved in adhesive dentistry and, and understanding dental adhesives, we, we say enamel is bonded to dentin and it's technically not, but it's, it's integrated in the crystal structure. And so the theory was if we could take these ceramics who actually had physical properties better than enamel, if you looked at them individually, because enamel, if you take it off the tooth is pretty brittle, soluble even. And bonded the antagonist surface of the crown to the dentin substructure, that that would create a stress transferring supportive apparatus that would reinforce the ceramic crown and decrease the fracture. Mm. And, and this work was, you know, this was work was done in the eighties and nineties, and I was I was a part of it in the nineties, and um, well, in the late eighties and nineties. And I did some of that work when I was in the corporate world. I did some of that work when I, when I came to the academy, which documented that for those early ceramics, that, that if you used a dentin bonding agent and a resin cement, that you significantly increased, almost doubled the fracture resistance of these ceramics. Now, that research is no longer as applicable 
because the ceramics that are available today have intrinsically higher properties and don't necessarily need to be adhesively bonded, although for retention purposes, they are. So that that's from a historical perspective that for probably two decades, that research really drove clinical practice. Wow, that's so cool. Were you like, ha, I found it. Are you ever like that? Or no, it's like, no. No, 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 not for that, not for that issue, because that, that, that was a, that was a village of, 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 of researchers across multiple corporate entities and multiple academic centers. But Dr. Barkmeyer and I, when, when I was working at, from the corporate world and placing studies here, and then later when I was here working for him, when he was the Dean, we, we had, we developed a fair amount of foundational information around that. In fact, we had a clinical trial here that was part of the evidence base that, that supported that, that idea for the, for these lower strength ceramics. Probably the more recent thing um, that researchers, most researchers know well, but dental companies market to a less common denominator, maybe. And it has to do with these sometimes very, very complicated chemicals that are in these new dental adhesive systems that are marketed to bond to enamel chemically and without using acid conditioning. And to convince the profession that etching enamel Simple. It's been done since 1955. It's one of the least advanced part of our profession. If you think about it, the best way to stick a polymer material to a tooth is to take 36% phosphoric acid and rinse it off and create micromechanical retention and flow a resin in that. That was first published in 1955. And in 2023, it's still the best way to bond. So we developed a cross a lot of years, and this is in collaboration here, Creighton and with the Japanese University in Tokyo, a whole series of adhesive uh, testing to not just document that, but to show clinically the downside of using self-etching adhesives at the enamel interface without etching. That led to the company's finally, finally developing products that are now called universal adhesives where you can selectively etch the enamel, allow the so-called self-etch, where you don't have to demineralize dentin, which has its own problems, and you get the best of both worlds. You get the bond to enamel that's the best you can get right now, and you get an outstanding adhesion to dentin without using acid. So it's called the selective etch technique. And these new universal adhesives give you this, um, I call it the Burger King, have it your way. <laughs> Um, model that you can do self-etch, you can do etch and rinse, and you can etch that if you want, and they still work reasonably well with it, but you don't need to, and you can use a selective etch technique. So this whole basis, almost over a decade of data from the scientific literature, started to get into clinicians' ideas and hands. Clinicians were seeing the failures for not etching enamel, and the companies pivoted from the simplistic way of doing bonding to at, to creating chemistries that were consistent with phosphoric acid on enamel and on dentin. And there's probably a half a dozen researchers that, that really contributed to that base, that, that evidence base that really drove some of that change. And, and to change the direction, because most dental companies are so market-driven, to actually change how they position a product um, 
and, and, and doing it, I mean, they did it because the market was starting to figure out that self-fetch enamel wasn't working very well. But so, so that's a more recent. Yeah, that's, I mean, because you contributed to that longitudinal research and you said, yep, that's still accurate. And that changed the way that well, things were made, things were thought of and still thought of and thought of differently and have evolved. So you, you contributed to the science, the evidence base. You made a difference here at the dental school and you guys, PS too. I went in one of his labs and saw some of the cool stuff. They, they do a lot of cool stuff in there. But, but, but please, in both of these, uh, these topics that I participated in, I mean, I wasn't the, I, I wasn't the driver or the, I'm not at all suggesting because of, of work that I did, that all these things change. It was, it was a broad collaboration, a broad, and research is really building blocks. You know, I build on the work of colleagues, they build on my work. And with every incremental uh, gathering of data and dissemination of data, we understand things more that leads to more questions, that leads to more investigations. And you build this evidence base that, that hopefully moves the needle in, in, a, in a positive way. It's all about the questions that you ask, right? It is. It, it is. It is. <laughs> so, Mark, um, it has been a delight. And just like that, where it's time has just flown by. But if people want to find you, you guys know that you can always find the guest uh, contact information in the show notes. And is there any other way that you want people to get in touch with you? or? Uh, uh, I'll have my email in the show notes, and that would be the best way to contact. I thought you were going to say smoke signals. I thought you said that's well, what yeah, you, were you can going send to... here in the Midwest and the Plains. You can you can send smoke signals. <laughs> He'll find you that way. Well, thank you so much for being on. For all the listeners, thank you for all of what you do every day for the patients' lives that you touch, for being there for the people that you are, and for that ripple effect that you create. And if you wouldn't mind doing me a favor, I always ask going to Apple and give us a five star rating, and then go over to YouTube, like, subscribe, and share. Thank you so much. We'll see you soon.